would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter number 13. Acts, chapter 13. We're going to actually look at two passages in the book of Acts this morning. Acts 13, 1 through 3, and then Acts 14, 21 through 28. We've sort of taken some time here at the beginning of the year to hit reset and uh, to focus on main things. I think the tendency for us as individuals, and certainly the same can be said for churches, is that we have an inclination toward a phenomenon sometimes described as mission drift. Are you familiar with the concept of mission drift? You start out in the beginning with a singular focus, recognizing that this is the main thing, the priority of our life, the priority of our ministry, the priority of my job, whatever the case might be. And then over the course of time, there are fires that pop up and you run to put out one small fire and then the next and then the next and then the next and some require more time and attention than others and after a period of time you look up to realize that you have been chasing after the lesser matters while neglecting entirely the priority of your life the priority of your ministry the priority of your job the priority of your family whatever the case might be it behooves us from time to time, personally and corporately, to be reminded of the main thing. It's often said, big goal, a hard thing, most important thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So we're endeavoring to do that together here at the beginning of the year, kind of resetting our focus, working to prevent any mission drift whatsoever, coming back to the singular focus of our Savior, which is to seek and to save that which was lost and the singular focus of the church, which is to make disciples of all nations. Over the past few weeks, we've talked a bit about this. And I would encourage you, if you were out, to go back and to revisit the sermon specifically from the past two weeks. We talked in week one about who a disciple is, just briefly, one who's come under the authority of Jesus. Jesus said, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Disciple is one who's joined in the mission of Jesus. Jesus said, go and make disciples. The disciple is one who is identified with Christ in word and in deed. Jesus said, be baptized in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, our means of identifying with Jesus. A disciple is one who has come under the teaching of Jesus, pursuing sanctification and obedience to his teaching. Jesus said, go, make disciples, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. Jesus said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In the Great Commission, a disciple is one who has Jesus abiding in them, and they are likewise abiding in Jesus. Jesus has, in addition, in the Great Commission, to defining the terms of discipleship, he has given us a strategy for disciple-making. Specifically, we are to go, which is to say we are to live with an intentional pursuit of the lost. We are actively seeking out those who don't have a saving relationship with Jesus so that we can make a gospel investment. We are to baptize, which is to say, for the sake of our conversation this morning, we are providing a direct invitation that the lost around us would entrust their soul to Jesus, and we are to teach walking alongside new believers and those who are wayward or away from God and modeling for them what it looks like, what it means to follow after Jesus with all of our life. That's how we make disciples. And there's a place for every member of the body of Christ in this primary objective of the church. 
we talked last week about the work of evangelism. This whole business of disciple making is predicated on the idea that we are telling people the message of the gospel. The only way people will be saved from their sin is to hear the message of the gospel. That Jesus in human history has come down from heaven, clothed himself in flesh, that he lived without sin, that he died in our place, that he rose again on the third day and by repentance and faith, he is glad to give us grace, mercy and forgiveness full and free. This is the message of the gospel. And the Bible says that faith comes by hearing, the hearing of the word of God. It is the responsibility of the body. In fact, it is our great privilege to speak of this message, to share this message and to implore those around us to believe the truth of this message. We talked through some of the mechanics of evangelism last week, and I hope to have encouraged those of you who may have been somewhat timid and to alleviated the fears of those who might have been intimidated by the concept or the idea of sharing your faith with someone else. Again, I want to encourage you to go back to those messages and uh, wrestle with them and how you might make application of them in your personal experience. I want to take more of a big picture approach this morning as we look at the book of Acts together. And I want us to think together about what the finish line is. What marks completion? When, when do we know in an area we have brought the work to its end? The book of Acts is going to help us to answer this question. What I want to, what I want to show you is that the gospel is moving in a specific way in the book of Acts. In Acts 1-8, the Bible says, Jesus speaking, you are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that provides something of an outline for the book of Acts. But even within that broader outline, there is a, a distinct way the gospel is moving. Here's what I mean. The gospel is moving from person to person. The gospel is moving from group to group. And the gospel is moving from church to church. This, this sets some things in our mind that I think are incredibly help, helpful for us thinking about disciple making. I got a few perplexed looks, but if you'll hang with me for just a moment, I'll tell you what I mean and hopefully provide some explanation as to how this sets the course for us. I want us to see Acts 13, 1 through 3 and Acts 14, 21 through 28, because these two passages bookend the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. You're familiar, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, with those maps in the back of your book, and perhaps you've struggled for all of your Christian life at understanding what all of those colors and arrows and directions in that map is really all about. One of the primary maps in the back of your Bible is to trace the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. What we're discussing this morning is the first missionary journey, how Paul regarded his work in those areas to be brought to completion. And this helps us, I think, to put our work as a local church in our Mid-South Bible Belt context into a broader perspective. And I think it can help us to see the critical nature of groups within our congregation as well. Acts chapter 13, if you found your way there, join me in standing as we read verses 1 through 3 together. This is what the Word of God says. In the church that was at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius the Cyrenian, Menaean, close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. 
as they ministered to the Lord, uh, as they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I have called them to. Then after they had fasted, prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Now for the sake of filling some gaps, the first missionary journey ensues. Paul and his missionary band travel to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch in Pisidia. They're leaving out from Antioch in Syria. They travel to Antioch in Pisidia, Iconium, and Lystra. We come to the end of chapter 14 and verse 21. Paul and his missionary band are returning the same way they went. Most of the time when Paul travels, he travels in a circuit or circular route. But on the first missionary journey, he travels a certain distance and then he travels back over the ground he has already covered. Acts 14, 21 says, after they had evangelized that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. After they spoke the message in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been entrusted to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a considerable amount of time with the disciples. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There are a number of noteworthy points that we ought to at least make reference to in the beginning of our discussion of these verses, points which won't be primary in our teaching this morning, but which are deserving of some attention. Number one, note that in Acts 13, one through three, the church at Antioch is commissioning among their best, sending Paul and Barnabas and Lucius the Cyrenian, Menaean, a close, close friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, who we know better as the Apostle Paul, they, they are sending from among their best. If I had been the lead pastor, the church at Antioch, and God said, send Paul and Barnabas, I would have probably gone back to the Lord in prayer and asked that he send someone else. They are faithful to send, and God is faithful to answer their faithfulness with great fruitfulness in the work of ministry. Most of you have experienced the generosity and the miraculous provision of God in financial areas of your life. I like to tell the story of Brandy and I serving in my first pastorate. I made $20,500 in my first pastorate. We had a small child. I was a seminary student, and she was a nursing student. We were so broke, we were hungry. And there came a particular moment in our experiences there where we had a 900, total of $900 obligation that was coming, and we had no idea how we would meet that obligation. We determined between ourselves that come what may, we were going to honor the Lord's commandment on our life to give, and so we did. When you need $900 and you were in the financial position we were in, it might as well be $9 million. And do you know God sent someone to our door with, of all things, a check for $900. I will never forget that. 
That's just one example of the way God provided for our needs from his hand to our mouth. We lived through those years and God was so gracious. We have never yet outgiven the Lord Jesus in our life. Now you've experienced that personally in financial ways in your life. That's a way that's quantifiable where we can see God show up and move and provide in those ways. But most churches together never give themselves the opportunity of seeing how God will just as graciously give in other areas when we're open-handed with what he's entrusted to us. We have this conversation often together as a church. You can look back across the history of Longview Point and the high water marks in terms of attendance and the spikes in growth come immediately after the willingness of this body to send members of this congregation to plant other churches. It's just, it's just another one of those areas, and listen, I know it can sound terribly cliche, where you're just not gonna, you're, you're not gonna excel God in the, in the department of, of giving. This is the first church I've ever had the privilege of being a part of where there was a healthy sending culture. So this is the only church I've ever been a part of that gets excited about people leaving. And it's a good thing, right? You know, most churches, somebody's leaving or going somewhere else, there's whispers and suspicion and concern. Here it's celebrated, it's an exciting thing. It's an intimidating, but exciting thing. I'm looking around at the three churches that are planning to launch in 23, and I'm going, this has kind of got me freaked out a little bit, Lord. There are some pretty good leaders in these core groups. Y'all are meeting in different areas and I'm sneaking by and peeking in. Who are we losing? But at the same time, there's an element of excitement. How will God provide? You know he will. How will he provide? In what kind of incredible ways will God shower us with blessing, even in the wake of so many quality leaders leaving to launch and plant churches in other communities? Most churches never get the privilege of experiencing this great blessing of God. The church at Antioch introduced this model in Acts chapter 13. There's a verse in Acts chapter 14, the passage we read in verse 22, that you've heard me quote again and again and again. Paul's message to the churches, he's circling back Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, or Antioch rather, Iconium and Lystra, and, and his, this is a message. It's one of encouragement. Through much suffering and tribulation, you must enter the kingdom of heaven. This is not exactly your best life now, right? And Paul's just saying, don't be shocked and astonished when difficulties come your way. This is the way of our Savior Jesus. This is a message of encouragement. Sometimes when things are not going so stellar in your life, you look around and we, we do a really good job of putting on this good face. We have social media personas and we have church personas and it seems like we're all buttoned up and packaged up. Sometimes I just benefit from hearing that there are others who are just as big a mess as I am. That seems to be Paul's message. It's been hard and it's been difficult. It's a labor of love, but it's no less a labor following after Jesus. There are hardships and difficulties that come along with this experience, but it's a sure sign that you're headed toward heaven through much suffering and tribulation. You must enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to know, to note, there's a statement in verse 26 that I find incredibly helpful and the broader picture of what's unfolding in these two chapters, I think can be terribly insightful for us as a congregation. Look at verse 26, 14, 26. From there, they sailed back to Antioch where they'd been entrusted to the grace of God 
for the work they had now completed. So they're called and they're commissioned by the church at Antioch. They go, the gospel is advancing person to person and group to group. As they circle back, the Bible says in verse 23 of chapter 14 that when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed to the Lord in whom they had believed, which I take to be an indication of the establishment of these groups now as formal churches with the assignment, with the appointment of elders and the performance of the functions of the church. Those one-time groups have now become churches. And with the planning of churches in those cities, Paul now regards the work to which he was initially called to be brought to completion. Paul's assignment there, there's now a missions outpost, there's an evangelism outpost in each of these particular cities. Because it's really the church at the end of the day, not necessarily a singular missionary, but the church that is God's mechanism for advancing the kingdom. Not a single cross-cultural missionary who comes into an area and wins everyone to faith in Jesus, but a single missionary who perhaps introduces the message of the gospel in an area, begins to draw together those who have believed, eventually assigns leadership within that body, who begins to perform the functions of the church, who themselves become collectively a congregation, who are God's missions outpost in that particular area, sending the message of the gospel out into the hearts and minds of those within that particular region. Now, if you think about this, this sort, of, this sort of changes how we understand the goal or the finish line. If I were to ask you, after last week's message where we talked so much about personal evangelism, if I were to say to you, what's the goal? What's the finish line? What are we shooting for? I think there'd be, for the most part, two answers. There'd be those who might be a little more spiritual who would say the goal is just to share the gospel. And they'd say that as a nod to the reality that the conversion of someone's heart is really the work of God. We just preach and it's up to God what he does with that. And once we've done that work, we've, we've brought our responsibility in disciple making to a conclusion. But isn't there work yet to be done? If this is the finish line, if not single disciples, not person to person or group to group, but church to church is the goal, are we really done at the point at which we have proclaimed the gospel? There'd be another group that'd say, our job is soul winning. We want to persuade people as to the truth of the gospel, and they would place the emphasis there on the conversion of souls. They wouldn't be neglecting or denying the fact that only God can touch and turn the heart of man, but they would see themselves in some ways responsible to see that there are those who entrust their life to Jesus. Know how we rejoice in someone's salvation. Is there any greater joy than to sit with someone, share with them the gospel, and see them embrace that message to move from death to life, from blind to sight? Is there anything better than that? But isn't there work yet to be done? If the work brought to completion looks more like Acts 14, just a momentary encounter, doesn't that create for us sort of a paradigm shift in our hearts and minds? Someone caught me between the services after the second service and said, this, this was a light bulb thing for me. And I've begun thinking, even in the last moments, about discipleship in, in different ways. If our, if our goal is not just to see people come to faith, but to see healthy, functional churches planted who are themselves 
reaching people, that changes my strategy in disciple making. It's not just a self-centered focus. You, you realize that being a disciple, is, it's, it's not just about not having sex outside of marriage, not viewing pornography, not getting drunk, not stealing, living a moral life, being a good productive citizen. Those are all good things that ought to be a part of the Christian experience. But that's not the finish line. Like that's not the goal. That's walking in sanctification. But the goal, the finish line is investing the message of the gospel in others and instructing them as to how they might invest the message of the gospel into others. If, if disciple making has as its ultimate aim church planning, then doesn't giving and repentance and faith and prayer and Bible study and work, don't, don't all of these component parts of the shared body become a part of that disciple making focus? Aren't we inviting people to more than just good, moral, upstanding lives? This does represent for us something of a paradigm shift, at least for some. The goal is not just to share. The goal is not just to win souls. The goal is to see this thing through, to see individual disciples come to faith in Christ. The gospel moves person to person, yes, but beyond that, to see the gospel move group to group, to see those individual people become parts of individual groups within the church where they can find the encouragement and the accountability essential to their growth in grace. And eventually to see those groups grow further, establishing and developing full, healthy, functional gospel churches that love Jesus with all of their heart and soul and strength and mind. I want us to think through this movement for just a moment, how the gospel moves person to person and group to group and church to church. I can show you most plainly in our passage how the gospel moves church to church. After the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, the gospel is always moving church to church. Churches, planning churches, planning churches, planning churches. We emphasize church planning here as a congregation, not as a part of some fad or even exclusively because we are ourselves a church plant, but because we regard this as a New Testament model for evangelism, mission, for kingdom advancement. The church is God's ordained means for the advancement of the kingdom. It's a shared local church responsibility. And the best way to see the kingdom advance in a given area is to plant within that area a healthy gospel church that serves as an evangelism outpost in that community. You see it even in the verses that we read. The church begins at Antioch by commissioning Paul, Barnabas, and others. And by the time we come to the end of chapter 14, churches have been established in the cities of Lystra and Iconium and Antioch of Pisidia. So the church is moving from church to church. But understand, and I think this is important, that we note that before the church moves, the gospel moves from church to church, it's moving person to person, and it's moving group to group. Sometimes I think for churches that have a direct interest in planning churches, we can sort of miss the, the trees for the forest a little. There can be the idea that what we need is a strategic location, with a charismatic personality and people will just come. And you can shift sheep and you can share people, but in terms of real meaningful kingdom advancement, 
There is no shortcutting or sidestepping the very difficult and sometimes awkward work of sitting kneecap to kneecap and eyeball to eyeball with other people, sharing with them the message of the gospel. The gospel moves first person to person. I think there are times when we read the book of Acts through the lens of our cultural perspective. I'll give you some examples of that. We read passages like Acts 2 or Acts 3 through 5, where 3,000 and 5,000 people come to faith in Jesus in an instant, and we think that that sets the paradigm for us. This is the way that we need to do it. And that approach to ministry dominated 20th century American evangelicalism. We just need to fill stadiums and do Billy Graham type crusades and we can win the masses. And I'm just telling you that although we celebrate anyone who comes to faith under any circumstances, that this is not normative. This is not God's primary means of winning people to faith in himself. We do this in all kinds of ways. We think of the Bible, we think this season in human history when God did miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle and great things happen. But do you realize there are really just three very brief windows of time in human history. The Bible records for us God moving in what we might regard to be these miraculous ways. Moses and Aaron, remember that? There were miracles performed in the ministry of Moses and Aaron. There's Elijah and Elisha, real miracles performed in the, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha and Jesus and the prophets. Most of the time, God works in ordinary ways through ordinary people, through the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of the message of the gospel. But even that we can interpret through the lens of our cultural experience. When I say to you this morning that the book of Acts is about the preaching of the gospel, it invokes in you these ideas of Peter at Pentecost taking something like the pulpit I stand behind just above the multitude gathered, preaching with an open Bible, just the way your pastor preaches this morning. But that doesn't at all seem to be the picture painted for us in Acts chapter 2. In fact, in verse 4 of Acts 2, and again in Acts 4, uh, verse 14 of chapter 2, the Bible says that they, a reference to the disciples, preach the message of the gospel, which I take to be the idea of those disciples dispersed within that multitude of people, sharing with them, not from a platform or a pulpit the way I preach this morning, but more one-to-one -one or one to a lesser group, the message of the gospel. In the lion's share of instances, the New Testament talks about preaching the gospel. It is not a reference to what I do this morning, but a reference to someone actively engaging individuals within their community on the street, in the marketplace, in a religious gathering, in the synagogue or otherwise, sharing with individual people the message of the gospel that Jesus saves by virtue of his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his victory in resurrection. I heard for years in ministry, preachers who enjoyed locking themselves away, who took an ivory tower approach to pastoring, closing themselves in an office, preparing week long for the sermon that they would pour out before their people on Sunday morning. They would lean into Acts 6, where the apostles said, we ought not give ourselves to the menial task assigned to deacons in this passage, but to prayer and the ministry of the word. They didn't mean locking themselves in a closet. 
They meant day by day actively engaging the community with the message. They meant personal evangelism. It is not good that you would stop personal evangelism so that you could wait tables or whatever the task of the moment is. That's exactly what they have in view. When the Bible says preach the word in the New Testament, more often than not, that's directed at the body as a whole, not the task of the pastor teacher in the Lord's Day gathering. We have all been commissioned to this person-to-person -person advancement of the message of the gospel. You see examples of this throughout the book of Acts. Man lame at the beautiful gate who trust and believe as Peter and John say to him, silver and gold, we have not, but what we have, we give you in the name of Jesus. A Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius who comes to faith at the preaching of Peter in Acts chapter 10. And a good number of others who are referenced individually throughout the book. So the gospel moves from person to person before it can ever move church to church. But after the gospel moves person to person, pattern is that the gospel begins to move from group to group. And I find this iteration of gospel advancement, this stage in gospel advancement to be uh, in, uh, entirely relevant to where we are as a congregation, the gospel moving group to group. I, I really spent a, more time than I should have with this part of the message in investigating this concept of groups within the larger church gathering in the New Testament. Most of what is said is said by implication rather than there being a passage that spells out the structural organization of small group or discipleship group ministries within those congregations, they are thinly referenced or veiled in some kind of way. It's just sort of the idea that it's in place and scarce or scant references made to that along the way. One noteworthy example of the presence of small groups within the larger body of Christ is perhaps Romans 16, where a number of households within the larger body are made reference to. Those could perhaps represent small churches. I'm not entirely certain, but I can say for certain that that long, extensive list of names in Romans chapter 16 would certainly not fit in any first century house church gathering. Certainly seem to be lesser groups within the larger body. Now, some of the grouping that's happening is happening out of necessity. If we go back to Acts 13 and 14, Paul goes, he makes his first trip through those three cities, and he's making disciples. When he returns on his return trip through those cities, he's meeting with those groups who eventually have leadership assigned, who assume the functions of the church. Those groups become churches. But before they are churches, they are groups. And in part, again, this is out of necessity. You and I need community. We desperately need community. And for many of us, when God called us to faith, he called us away from family. He called us away from friends. He called us away from the community we had known for all of our life. I've shared with you before, the first two years of walking with Jesus were among the loneliest years of my life. You try to stay in an old friend group and be salt and light, but it didn't take me long to realize that I don't have the maturity to bear with the temptation that I'm meeting every time I am with these guys, every time I'm with them. It's temptation on temptation, and I succumb, and I succumb. I'm going to have to separate myself if I'm going to walk worthy of this calling. 
19 years old and you're attending a rural Southern Baptist church in the middle of nowhere, and an old man, 73-year-old man, became the best friend I had for about two years. And when you're 19 and hip and cool and handsome, it's hard to find good friendship with a 73-year-old man. But the church became that for me. We've been made that way. We've been created that way. One of the first observations that God made of mankind is that it is not good that man should be alone. The triune God of heaven who has enjoyed fellowship within himself for all of eternity has made us in the likeness of his own image. He made us for fellowship. He made us for community, calling us out of this world and into the church. He has afforded for that need in powerful ways. Out of necessity, the church began to draw itself together even before they were a church. The gospel is moving person to person and ultimately group to group. But there's a second way that this grouping together of believers is essential or made necessary. Even before you get to the New Testament, even apart from the letters of Paul or any conversation about the church whatsoever, it is clear that the people of God need one another. The writer of Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. The wise walk in the counsel of many. Again, you and I are not created to live in isolation or independent of the influence, assistance, encouragement, or accountability of our brothers and sisters. We need one another. You need a small group of believers within your local church in order to sufficiently walk worthy of your calling. I'm going to camp here for just a moment. Some of you in your minds are going, this is where the pastor encourages us to get in to discipleship groups. You are correct. And, and, I, and I want you to know that this is, this is not in order to satisfy the needs or the want for programming in certain areas. There, there is an urgency about your involvement in discipleship group ministry that you should be careful not to discount. I have been pastoring for a little while now, long enough to make some basic observations about human habits and the church in general. And I would just say to you, listen, I have never, never, now more than 15 years of ministry, I have never known a single church member to have a consistent, healthy relationship with Jesus without being a meaningful member of a small group, a discipleship group within that congregation. Never, not one example. Some of you are thinking in your mind, well, I'm not a part of a discipleship group and I've been in this church and I've been doing this and I've been doing that. Yeah, organically in ways that may not map well, you've made connections by serving in some capacity through family, through friendships in some way, you've established some meaningful connections and they're the thread that are holding you on. I've never known a single person in all these years of ministry that was able to be an active participant in kingdom advancing work, an ongoing member of the body of Christ in a meaningful, service-oriented kind of way without meaningfully participating in a small group within the life of that body. Years ago, pastoring where I was at the time in a small town, everybody knows everybody, everybody knows everything about everybody, which can be really good and it can be really bad. 
there was a there was a single mother that began to attend our our church and there were a number of things that were outstanding about this situation one there was some baggage there there was some history there and so there was a lot of excitement about what seemed to be evidences of of repentance and grace in her life she was attending church and she began to do so consistently second of all she sat on the second row like right in front which is a very unbaptist like thing to do right i told the eight o'clock service this morning if anybody ever throws a grenade at the pulpit everyone except me will survive they all just sort of sit in a semicircle as far away as they can get. And she was right there. And she would attend every corporate worship gathering, Sunday morning and Sunday night and the Wednesday night Bible study and prayer meeting that I held in the sanctuary. She was always there. About six or eight months went by and someone happened in conversation. And it was almost focused on something else. And really not engaged the way I probably should have been. And they made a comment about their enthusiasm about this young lady and, and her children attending. And you know, sometimes you say things before you think. It's always good to think before you speak. And I just said, just really quickly, it won't last. And, and I, didn't, I didn't say it to disparage her. I didn't say it as though I had quit on any attempts at seeing her more closely connected to a small group within the life of the church. I just said it as an observation in reality. For all of her enthusiasm for the corporate gathering of the church, there was never any meaningful connection made to a small group within the body. And my harsh observation in reality would prove over the course of the next months to be exactly right. And brothers and sisters, I want you to listen to me because there's a whole bunch of you floating around out there enjoying the anonymity of the large group, resistant to the idea of making any meaningful connection to a smaller group or discipleship group within our body. That approach to walking with Jesus will not last. For the sake of your soul, you need the accountability and the fellowship that comes with connecting in smaller groups within the life of our body. You just need, frankly, I, I need that. And most assuredly, you do as well. Now think for a moment, we're, we're not talking about meeting our personal needs. Now that's a, a great benefit of the small group. What we're talking about this morning is the movement of the gospel from person to person, from group to group, and from church to church. The movement of the gospel. Now, we have yet to see in my time as your pastor, I think, I think Wade One would uh, attest to this as well. We have yet to see our groups reach their capacity within their communities for seeing the gospel move group to group. What I mean is we, we have remained so far behind an adequate number of discipleship groups to service the needs of our existing con congregation that we've yet to avail ourselves of the opportunity to press into our neighborhoods, our subdivisions, our workplaces, our schools with the gospel. Let me tell you how this goes for a moment. The, the reason Sunday school as a concept is the golden calf in a lot of congregations is because they remember when Sunday school was the point of access to the church. There was a time not so long ago when a person who had interest in attending a church would come first to a Sunday school class. 
And when they felt at home with the Sunday school class, they would begin to attend the corporate church gathering and eventually come into the membership of the church. Now, there's still some places that are 50 years behind the rest of the world where this is still the case. And that's not a knock. It's just real. Another example of speaking before you think, right? And, and then sort of the next phase, and I've experienced this in my, in my ministry personally, is, is the corporate gathering of the church became the comfortable place because you could sort of ease in and ease out and fly under the radar. If you go into a small group, people are likely to ask you to do things. They might ask you to read. They might ask you to pray. They, they, they might ask you to introduce yourself, various other strange things we tend to do when we get together. As, and listen, I get it. Like, it. It doesn't happen often, but if I ever get the chance to go visit another church where I'm not preaching, the la I, I, I will come right up to the edge of lying before I tell them that I'm pastor. Because they're going to ask me to do stuff, right? I just want to be there and just not do stuff when I get a chance to go somewhere. I get it. Listen, I get it. So they'll come to the big gathering and then they'll go to the smaller group. But the tide has so turned against cultural Christianity. But where we are now is that people are not even going to come into the corporate gathering of the church. They're going to have to be engaged in meaningful ways. For all my ministry, I've heard of creative ways of criticizing and describing people who come to church on Christmas and Easter only. We might ought to start celebrating that there's enough of, a, of an acceptability about the Christian faith that people are even willing to come out of some sense of obligation during those seasons of the year to be exposed to the preaching of the gospel. Such criticisms always seemed a little distasteful to me. There was a time when there was social acceptability and even some degree of social pressure to come and hear. But I'm telling you, that's the exception and not the norm. And to adopt that exceptional season in our respective history as the pattern for gospel advancement and meaningful ministry is a foolhardy thing to do. The pattern for real kingdom advancement has always been to go and tell, not invite them to come and to see. And your groups, in so much as they operate as evangelistic outposts in your home, in your neighborhood, in your community, among your coworkers and your friends, have far more capacity for winning the loss to faith in Christ than we do as the collective whole. Can you imagine if every small group within this body determined to win their street, determined to win their neighborhood, determined to win their circle of influence to faith in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the impact that that would have for the kingdom in the Mid-South of America? It wouldn't take long before the world would begin to move at that kind of kingdom advancement. And I'm, not, I'm not talking about ad adopting a strategy for pragmatic purposes because it's effective or because it works. I'm talking about adopting a pattern established for us in the book of Acts and acknowledging the fact that there is something of God about a group of people getting together who have an earnest desire and are persistent in prayer to see the people within their circle come to faith in Christ. The gospel moves church to church, yes, but before it ever moves church to church, it moves person to person, and eventually it must move group to group. And at the point at which the gospel begins to move group to group, it begins to move in leaps and in bounds. You need a discipleship group. And your community needs your discipleship group 
to have their heart lit ablaze, to see them come to full faith in Jesus. I go places to preach and people will introduce themselves to me and people when they are at their church and they introduce themselves to the guest preacher, they want to validate themselves sometimes. They want you to know who they are. I'm not just some Johnny come lately church member. I didn't just show up today. I've been around. And they will say things like, I've been teaching the same Sunday school class for 50 years. Or they'll say, I've been in the same Sunday school class with the same people for 20 years, perfect attendance. And they'll say it in this sort of proud way. And they hear it as a success. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. You, you, you've got to realize that the primary purpose of your discipleship group, although it meets your needs well, is not to meet your needs. The primary purpose of your discipleship group is to make disciples of those who don't know Jesus, that they would make disciples of those who don't know Jesus, who would make disciples of those who don't know Jesus. And you've got to begin to discern that this idea of having the same group over an extended period of time represents not a success, but an abject failure of the discipleship group to do what we intend the discipleship group to do. Now, I know our discipleship groups, and frankly, there's a few groups here. If I was in that group, I wouldn't want to leave either. But we've got to learn to prioritize the gospel needs of others over our own comforts. We have groups that are outstanding. I get invited to discipleship group parties, and I'm always excited when somebody invites me to come to their discipleship group party. But if I'm just being honest, there's a handful of discipleship group parties. When they invite me, I'm going, all right, this is a fun group. We're going to have a good time on this. I get, listen, I get it. But you're going to have to forego the comfort of the group in order to see multiplication begin to take place. And it can be a very discomforting thing. But what matters the most for us? Our personal comfort, our satisfaction, our familiarity within a group, or the advancement of the message of the gospel. If we started 20 new discipleship groups this year, we would only have started enough discipleship groups to meet the needs of our existing congregation. And there are 25,000 people in our city, many of whom don't know Jesus as the savior of their life. And there are 225,000 people within our county, 13% of which are connected to a local Baptist church, 13%. In this little bastion of Christendom as we see it, 13%. There are scores of lost people at an arm's reach from our church. We're going to have to forego the comfort of our group and be willing to, to, to risk it in order to see our community, our neighbor, our friends, our family, our coworkers, our classmates come to faith in Jesus. What I'm saying to you, there's a number of things this morning. There's some action items for you. One, you need to be in a discipleship group. And your walk with Jesus may not be long if you don't find a place to connect in a meaningful way soon. If you're here and you're a part of a discipleship group, you have a direct obligation to pursue those within our congregation who don't have that kind of connection, to bring them in and to encourage them. We're really trying to do a better job with new members of our body, helping them to get connected. Last week, we set them up. We had 
discipleship group training at the same time as the starting point new members class. And so we bring out the new members from their starting point class. And I said literally to the discipleship group leaders, sharks, there's blood in the water, go get them. But that does nothing for the hundreds of members of our body who've been here for a season, but have yet to be connected to, and you just, listen, you just need it. Your fate will be the same as that single mother who sat front and center for six or eight months and eventually fell away from the body of Christ. You just need it. And, 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 there's, and there's got to begin to be this thought in our mind of, of seeing our discipleship groups as a means of reaching people with the message of the gospel, not just satisfying our need for community, our want for fellowship. In every discipleship group, I, I can't think of a single exception, there, there are leaders who are just sitting there watching someone else lead. And you won't go and lead a group because it's a lot easier to just be there as a participant in the group you're currently in. And you're gonna have to get over that. You're gonna have to elevate the gospel needs of your community over your own personal interests. Isn't that what Jesus has called us to do? I think there's something about that in the Sermon on the Mount. The gospel moves from person to person, from group to group, and eventually from church to church. This is the way the gospel moves. Don't we want to participate in that? Don't we want to be a part of that? So this is the standard preacher spiel for small groups, except it has packaged with it a, a message of warning and urgency. N not only for the lost, but for you. You need it. They need it. Today's our opportunity. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word for its truth, for the movement of the gospel. Pray, God, that you would help us to embrace um, the work that lies ahead. Pray that you would find us willing to forego uh, our personal comforts and even satisfaction with the way things are to see the gospel advanced. God, I, I pray that you would help us to actively pursue the lost in our life. That, Lord, as, as discipleship groups, you would make us persistent in prayer for the salvation of, of those within our communities, within our neighborhood, within our families, even those who may be in attendance. God, I, I pray that you would continue through the discipleship group ministry of our church to raise up the next generation of leaders and the next generation of leaders and the next and the next. Continue to equip this body with the leadership necessary to send and to plant. May the kingdom advance all the more. God, thank you for the great love that you have shown us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.